Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled, Multidisciplinary Perspectives in Advanced HCC, a focus on immune checkpoint inhibitors, is provided by Access Medical Education and supported by an educational grant from Genentech, a member of the Roche Group. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Hello, and welcome to this educational activity entitled Multidisciplinary Perspectives in Advanced Hepatocellular Carcinoma, a Focus on Immune Checkpoint Inhibitors. I am Dr. Robert Macharnik, Emeritus Professor of Clinical Medicine. I am joined today by Dr. Richard Finn, Professor of Medicine in the Division of Hematology Oncology at the Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA in Los Angeles, and Dr. Amit Singhal, Associate Professor of Medicine and Medical Director of the Liver Tumor Program at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. Here is a disclaimer and disclosure indicating that we may be discussing off-label usage of approved agents or agents that are in development. Here is our financial disclosure information. Here are the learning objectives for this activity. Today, we will review and evaluate the most recent clinical data and treatment recommendations, as well as providing expert insights on the use and management of immune checkpoint inhibitors for the treatment of advanced hepatocellular carcinoma. Let's start by discussing the current hepatocellular carcinoma treatment landscape. Dr. Finn, would you tell us what the treatment options are for advanced HCC and why immunotherapy is so active in the treatment of HCC? So when we think about systemic treatment of advanced liver cancer, we're really discussing the group of patients who by the Barcelona or BCLC staging system fall into the intermediate stage B or advanced stage C group. Now, the Barcelona staging system is important in our assessment of patients with liver cancer because it takes into account the two competing risks for outcome, uh, specifically death, and that involves liver characteristics or liver physiology, the extent of their cirrhosis and its effect on their performance status, as well as tumor burden. And when we look at the BCLC, we see it exists with five stages which on one side is the stage D patients who are very advanced decompensated liver disease. And these patients generally should be considered for supportive care uh, because they're child PUC, they have ascites and elevated bilirubin and poor performance status. The caveat is some patients will have a small enough tumor burden that they could be considered for liver transplant, which would be curative. And on the other side, on the extremes, are those patients with earlier stage disease who, if they have well-compensated liver function, can be considered for uh, surgical resection, or which would be more likely the case in the United States is that there are patients who have some evidence of portal hypertension or some medical contraindication to surgery, and these patients might go on to get local ablation with either microwave or radiofrequency ablation and eventually get listed for liver transplant. Now, the majority of patients we see are this intermediate B or advanced stage C, and it's important to keep in mind in liver cancer, you can have advanced liver cancer and be a candidate for systemic treatment without having tumor outside the liver. And this is for patients who have intermediate disease, who have uh, received chemoembolization, but their tumor is progressing despite taste and progressing within the liver, 
or patients who develop vascular invasion. So on imaging, they have tumor invading into the portal vasculature, either within or outside the liver. And this would also be considered a characteristic of advanced disease, let alone patients with metastatic spread. And until 2017, the standard of care for these patients was serafinib. And that's been changing. As we all know, there's a lot of interest in targeting the uh, VEGF axis in cancer medicine, and there's several ways to do that. There's monoclonal antibodies to the VEGF ligand, uh, such as bevacizumab. There are antibodies against the VEGF receptor, such as uh, ramucirumab. Both of these are approved in various indications in liver cancer. And then for many years, the backbone of drug development has been small molecule inhibitors of the VEGF receptor kinase, as well as other intracellular kinases. So the pivotal studies with serafinib were done uh, over a decade ago uh, in the North American and European cohort, the SHARP study, and then a separate cohort done in Asia. And both of these studies came to the same conclusion, that compared to placebo, serafinib improved overall survival, both by the same hazard ratio, 0.69 or 0.68 in Asia, and that's an over 30% decrease in the risk of death. And this was felt to be low-hanging fruit. Uh, to beat placebo appeared to be uh, an easy thing, but with that being said, serafinib was the first drug to do that. And subsequently, until only this year, 2020, did we see a regimen that actually beat serafinib in terms of overall survival. And what we learned from the serafinib studies is that we can improve survival without inducing objective responses. That is to say, serafinib was cytostatic. It could generally slow progression. And it does have a side effect profile that was tolerable in this group of patients, 90% of whom have underlying liver disease, uh, i.e. some degree of cirrhosis. But keep in mind, all the patients accrued to liver cancer studies are child PUA by design to limit the effect of the underlying liver disease for the outcomes. And typically the primary outcome is always overall survival to date, at least. Uh, so then came along Lenvantinib. Lenvantinib was approved uh, in the frontline setting based on the REFLEX study, which was a non-inferiority study that showed that, that Lenvantinib, a potent VEGF receptor and FGFR receptor uh, multi-kinase inhibitor had uh, a survival that was non-inferior to serafinib. Now, while the overall survival was non-inferior, lenvantinib did improve response rates and significantly improve progression-free survival. So now in 2018, we had two options in frontline liver cancer, and a number of agents were being approved at the same time in second line after progression on serafinib. And there's been numerous failures over this decade from 2007 to 2017. And really in the past three years, we've seen a dramatic increase of drugs approved. Currently we have nine different regimens approved in the United States to treat advanced liver cancer. And that includes regorafenib, the first drug approved uh, after serafinib. And that was the first drug approved in second line. Uh, we talked about lenvantinib. Uh, Cabazantinib, another small molecule, VEGF, CMET, and Axel inhibitor that was approved in second line. Ramucirumab, which initially failed in its second line study, was then approved based on a repeat study focusing on this high AFP population. And then we've had a number of immunotherapy approvals, mostly accelerated approvals, 
but now more recently the approval of tezolizumab and bevacizumab in the front line based on a positive phase 3 study. <clears throat> and here on this side, we see the NCCN guidelines for systemic treatment, and most of these are supported by high level of evidence, category 1, and in the front line, serafinib, lenvantinib, and atezolizumab and bevacizumab. Uh, and, and keep in mind that while these studies were only done in child PUA uh, patients, many of our patients we see in the, uh, the clinic will not be child PUA, they will not be clinical trial candidates, and we need to be able to adapt these data to best manage our patients. The same thing can be said about second-line drugs, and keep in mind, all the second-line studies done to date have always followed serafinib. So then comes along lenvantinib, and then more recently atezolizumab and bevacizumab. This is significant progress we're making. So I don't think we necessarily throw out all the data we learned in the prior serafinib era, but really say that we've proven that these drugs are anti-liver cancer drugs and figure out how best to sequence them in the clinic. Interestingly, the NCCN guidelines include nivolumab as a single agent, uh, and they say in certain circumstances, and specifically those patients who aren't a candidate for a TKI or for patients who can't receive other anti-angiogenic agents, and presumably this means bevacizumab. Now, nivolumab was approved on an accelerated guy, uh, basis for second-line liver cancer, and we'll talk about that data, whereas in the front line, it did not meet its uh, endpoint versus serafinib, but certainly the drug does have uh, single-agent activity in a subset of patients. Uh, and survival in the phase three study with nivolumab for that arm of the study was 16 months. And this may be something to consider, though we can't say there's high-level evidence supporting that. And Folfox chemotherapy really is not used in the West. And here we see the current immunotherapy approvals in liver cancer. Uh, the IMBRAVE 150 study uh, drove the approval of atezolizumab and bevacizumab because it was superior to serafinib in overall survival, progression-free survival, as well as uh, response rate and quality of life assessments. Uh, in second line, both nivolumab and pemrelizumab got accelerated approval based on single-arm phase two studies that showed response rates in the 15 to 20% range uh, without any clear biomarker or clinical subgroup that benefited more or less. Uh, however, the phase three studies with these drugs didn't meet their endpoints. Uh, and only recently this year did we see the approval of nivolumab and ipilimumab approved again in second line based on accelerated approval. The phase three study of nevo and ipi versus serafinib is ongoing. Uh, but needless to say, we saw response rates with this combination of around 30%, though there was increased side effects. And it's reported that the need for uh, steroids for autoimmune adverse events in this study was close to 50%. Thank you for that. Will you now review for us the current and emerging immunotherapy options for the first-line treatment of hepatocellular carcinoma? The phase three study, Checkmate 459, was to be the confirmatory study of nivolumab's activity in advanced liver cancer. And this was an open-label study of nivolumab versus serafinib in patients with child PUA liver function, good performance status, with the primary endpoint of overall survival. And this study uh, was based on the phase two Checkmate 040 study, which again was the basis for the accelerated approval in second line. 
Now, what you can see here is that the study did not meet its endpoint. Uh, Serafinib had the longest survival we'd seen in a, second, uh, in a frontline liver cancer study of just under 15 months. And nivolumab also had the longest survival at the time that we saw in a phase three liver cancer study with just over 16 months. What was very interesting in this study is that we saw that over 20% of the patients, close to 30% of the patients actually, in the serafinib arm, actually at progression on serafinib went on to receive immune checkpoint inhibitors or immunotherapy in the second line setting. Now, the study did confirm the safety profile of nivolumab, and it also confirmed the response rate of nivolumab that we saw in the second line setting as a single agent. Now, the interest for us in research has been to try to improve the response rate of single agent IO. And that would require perhaps identifying a biomarker where we can enrich for the population of patients who get that benefit, or look at combining IO with another uh, target and mechanism of action. And, and there's been a lot of interest in combining IO with VEGF inhibitors, whether TKIs or antibodies. Our understanding of the mechanism of VEGF inhibition has, I think, grown scientifically. It's matured over time from when it was first approved with this idea that we can affect the flow of blood to a tumor and, and starve it of oxygen. Uh, and, and certainly that is an important mechanism. But as we've seen in some uh, preclinical studies with bevacizumab is that by normalizing the vasculature, uh, you affect the uh, immune infiltrate and microenvironment around the tumor. And you can actually promote a pro-immune anti-tumor environment which then with a drug like atezolizumab can amplify that and, and therefore lead to more efficacy. So there was initially a single arm uh, phase 1b2 study of atezolizumab and bevacizumab. And this study was a proof of concept type of study designed to assess safety. And very early on, there was a fairly high response rate seen with the combination of atezolizumab and bevacizumab in the single arm component. And then and later on, there was a randomized component of Atezo and Bev versus Atezo alone. And that confirmed the observation that the combination has a higher response rate than either drug alone. And if we go back, many of us in the liver cancer space for some time actually looked at Bevacizumab uh, in the early 2000s because we know liver cancer is a very hypervascular tumor. Uh, but there were some safety concerns and there was not overwhelming response with single agent Bevacizumab and by then, serafinib was approved, uh, and there were other drugs in the space, and bevacizumab never moved ahead into phase three, tr three trials until now in combination with Atezo. And so here you see the response rate from the single arm component. You can see in over 100 patients, the response rate was 36%, with 12% of patients having CRs, 24% having PRs, and uh, a total disease control rate of 71%. So the I Am Brave 150 study, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in May of 2020, was an open-label global study that looked at the combination of atezobev given intravenously every three weeks versus serafinib at the dose of 400 milligrams twice a day. Uh, and the co-primary endpoints here were both overall survival and progression-free survival. And again, uh, we used very standard stratification factors as well as selecting patients who are child PUA, and good performance status. Importantly, uh, because of bevacizumab's 
activity on the VEGF axis and its association with bleeding and other malignancies, uh, patients were required to have an upper endoscopy within six months of coming on study. And if not having one, they would have to have that done because we know patients with chronic liver disease are at risk of varices. Here you see the breakdown characteristics of the patients enrolled in the study. And this is a very typical population, I think, for liver cancer patients, uh, a little older. So this study was stopped at its first interim analysis when it was presented that the uh, survival curve separated early and remained separated uh, through the course of follow-up. And with a median follow-up of about eight and a half months, we see that the hazard ratio for death was 0.58. So this is a 42% decrease in the risk of death. As compared to the SHARP study with serafinib versus placebo, that hazard ratio was 0.69, and that was versus placebo. So here versus an active control for the first time, we're seeing in the frontline setting a significant improvement in overall survival. Serafinib had a median survival of about 13 months, uh, which again is comparable to modern studies with serafinib. And still at the time of this readout, uh, we still had not reached the median survival in the combination arm. And uh, this study is ongoing, and we'll wait to see updated data in the future. Now, the study also met its primary endpoint of improving progression-free survival, again, with a similar, similar hazard ratio of 0.59, with an improvement of 4.3 to 6.8 months. And if we look at the secondary readout of response rate, Again, what we're seeing here is response rates now in the high 20s, 27%. Uh, and that is a fairly high response rate when we think of where we were with the TKIs. Because uh, here we have a response rate that is fairly high, and patients who do respond have a long uh, response. Now, there are other studies ongoing in this space. Uh, of combining VEGF inhibition with uh, TKIs. Uh, the study Keynote 524, or the 116 study, is looking at lenvantinib in combination with pembrolizumab. And interestingly, very similar to the phase single-arm study with the Tezobev, we're seeing response rates in the 36% range by, modify, by conventional resist, uh, by independent review, uh, and by M-resist, also higher 46%. And again here, some of these being complete responses, the majority being partial responses, and disease control rates very high in the you know, high 80% range, and duration of response by resist of over a year. So again, this study I think is very exciting. It, it's building the story around dual inhibition of uh, checkpoint inhibition and VEGF receptor plus inhibition. Uh, and this has led to the LEAP002 study, which is ongoing, looking at the combination of pembrolizumab and uh, lenvantinib versus lenvantinib alone. And that's a, a phase three placebo-controlled study. Now, atezolizumab is also being evaluated with cabozantinib. Cabozantinib, we mentioned, is approved in second line. It's a multi-kinase inhibitor. Uh, which hits the VEGF receptor, which I think has been validated now as being important in combination with IO, but also hits other receptors such as the TAM kinases, specifically Axel, CMET, the hepatocyte growth factor, and builds on this idea that you can affect the immune microenvironment around a tumor 
that in combination with a checkpoint inhibitor, such as the PD-L1 inhibitor, tezolizumab, can improve response rates. Now, what about dual checkpoint inhibition? So nivolumab and ipilimumab, nivolumab inhibiting PD-1, ipilimumab targeting the CTLA-4 protein, uh, is approved now in liver cancer based on an accelerated approval mechanism. And this ongoing phase three study is evaluating this combination versus either serafinib or linvantinib as first-line treatment. Uh, and we are anxious to see the results uh, when that's ready. But again, the combination in second line was giving response rates of around 30%. And along those lines is the Himalaya trial. Uh, this study is looking at the pd one antibody Dervalumab uh, plus Tremilumumab versus serafinib. Uh, this initially was a four-arm study, uh, but now is a three-arm study once the dose of the combination was established. And it's Dervalumab versus Derva plus Tremi versus Serafinib. This study has completed accrual, and we're awaiting results. Uh, at ASCO, we saw some data of Derva and Tremi in a single-arm uh, study in second line, and we saw response rates of around 24% uh, with an acceptable safety profile. And now we're waiting for results from this phase three study. That was great, Dr. Finn. Is the MBRAVE 150 data practice changing? How have you integrated the combination approach of VEGF inhibition with immunotherapy into your practice? I think the approval of atezolizumab and bevacizumab in the frontline treatment of liver cancer is really a game changer. Uh, for so long, we've wanted something that improve survival versus serafinib, and we've got that. Uh, given that we need to pay attention to its side effect profile, uh, specifically, I think, asking ourselves why we shouldn't use this for a patient. I, I think, really, this has become the frontline standard of care, uh, unless there's patients who have some definite contraindication to IO or to bevacizumab. Uh, keeping in mind that the VEGF receptor inhibitors, linvantinib and serafinib, do have overlapping uh, side effect profile with bevacizumab. So uh, I think it's really the high response rate and maintain quality of life or even improve quality of life with this combination that for me will make it the standard of care. Dr. Singhal, let's now turn to you for a minute. What are your thoughts on where we are with first-line therapy for advanced hepatocellular carcinoma? And what would you recommend for a patient with both cirrhosis and HCC? That's a great question um, and very important in clinical practice since the majority of HCC in the Western world present in the setting of cirrhosis. In fact, in the U.S. and Europe, we can say that over 80%, if not over 90% of, of patients with advanced HCC occur in the setting of cirrhosis. Now, when we consider cirrhosis, it's not just one big bucket. There's different gradations of how severe someone's cirrhosis can be. And we typically classify this going from child pew A to child pew B to child pew C, depending on how sick somebody's liver is at the time of clinical presentation. As you've already heard from Dr. Finn, when we think of atizolizumab and bevacizumab, this really was restricted to patients with well-compensated liver disease. That is child pew A cirrhosis with minimal hypertension. However, there are many patients who present with advanced HCC who may have more significant liver dysfunction, whether this is having poor hypertension or if it's having more advanced liver disease and being sorry, child pub cirrhosis. 
And in those patients, we have to consider alternative therapies that have been evaluated in patients with more advanced liver dysfunction, such as serafinib or nivolumab. We know that serafinib has been evaluated in a lot of real world clinical experience, such as the Gideon study. And we know that um, nivolumab was evaluated in a small subset of child QB patients as part of the Checkmate 040 study. Of course, we hope that more and more real world data will be available for other agents so we can start to consider them um, in child QB cirrhosis or those patients with portal hypertension. But at least right now, that's how I consider it, where atizolizumab and bevacizumab is really frontline therapy for most patients with child QA cirrhosis and no portal hypertension. But we have to consider alternative therapies with patients with more advanced um, liver dysfunction. Thanks, Dr. Singal. Now let's turn to second line treatment. Dr. Finn, will you please discuss the available data for immunotherapy as second line treatment? So as exciting as things have been in the frontline setting, we actually have a lot of developments in the second line setting, uh, which will influence how we sequence drugs moving forward. So Checkmate 040, the 040 study was the first study with a PD-1 inhibitor, uh, really to look at the question carefully of how these drugs work in liver cancer populations. And this has grown over time to have multiple arms to it, but the initial arm was dose escalation phase and expansion phase to make sure that PD-1 inhibition would be safe in a population of patients with underlying liver disease. And the dose escalation was looked at in hepatitis B, infected versus hepatitis C versus those patients who don't have viral hepatitis. And the results of this study is, was the basis for the accelerated approval of nivolumab. And we saw response rates of around 15%. And what was striking is that the responders had a long duration of response, over 16 months. And if you look at these waterfall plots, we see that the percentage of responders really didn't differ from the etiology of their liver disease, whether they had hepatitis C, hepatitis B, or non-viral etiology for their liver cancer. And we also saw that in the frontline setting, the responses were significant as well. And based on this, uh, nivolumab got accelerated approved in the second line, with the phase three confirmatory study being the Checkmate 459 study, which we discussed before. And that study, O40, also established the safety profile of this drug in liver cancer patients. Now, Checkmate 040 also had an arm evaluating various doses of nivolumab and the CTLA-4 antibody ipilimumab. Uh, and as it turns out, this study became the basis for accelerated approval uh, of this combination in second line. And that was really based on what we see here is response rates of over 30% regardless of the... Uh, dosing regimen. Uh, RMA is what did get approval, which was nivolumab one mg per kg and IPI three mg per kg for four doses every three weeks, and then followed by the standard dose of nivolumab in this population of 240 every two weeks. Uh, and the reason this arm was selected was while the response rates were very similar, the survival for this arm of the study was quite longer than the others. We see up to 23 months. Keeping in mind that this is a single-arm study, you know, overall 150 patients or so, but ARMA alone was only 50 patients, 
And as mentioned, this study is this combination is now being evaluated in a phase three study uh, versus serafinib or lenvantinib. Now, similarly, pembrolizumab was evaluated in a single arm phase two study in a cohort of liver cancer patients who had child PUA liver disease that had progressed on serafinib. And we saw a very similar observation. That is to say that regardless of etiology, there was a number of patients who got a benefit from the drug as measured by response or stable disease. And based on this data set, again, uh, pembrolizumab got accelerated approval. Now, the confirmatory study for pembrolizumab was Keynote 240, which was a phase three study in second line. And this is probably the last phase three study we'll see versus placebo in second line because we have so many drugs approved. And in this study, we took patients who had prior serafinib and randomized them two to one of pembro versus placebo. And importantly, it had two co-primary endpoints, overall survival and progression-free survival. And we confirmed the single agent activity of pembrolizumab. Here you see a response rate of 18%. Uh, disease control rate of 62%. And if you responded to pembrolizumab, uh, there was a long median duration of response of over 13 months. Now, here you see the overall survival curves. Uh, median survival with placebo is 10.6 months, which was the longest we've seen in a control arm. And perhaps that's related to the ability of patients to go on to drugs at progression. Uh, also, we excluded patients with main portal vein invasion, which wasn't always an exclusion in other phase three studies. Uh, but the median survival with Pembro was just under 14 months, 13.9 months. This was a hazard ratio of 0.78. The confidence interval is less than one. And the p-value is 0.0238. However, we cannot say this was a positive study because based on the statistical design, we needed a p-value of 0.0174. However, many of us feel that this study confirmed that in a subset of patients, pembrolizumab clearly has clinical activity. And, you know, the next generation of studies will be combining these drugs for uh, in the frontline setting. So we have a lot more immunotherapy approaches in the second line for patients previously treated with serafinib. Dr. Spin and Singal, are there nuances between these immunotherapy options that would help you to choose treatment? And what would you do for a patient that was treated with atezolizumab and bevacizumab in the first line? So keeping in mind that all the drugs approved in second line were approved in patients who had had only prior serafinib. Now, I think for a patient who gets lenvantinib frontline, then the single agent IO option certainly would be an option at progression, as well as some of the TKIs that are approved. I think Single-agent IO after prior atezolizumab and bevacizumab might be a little harder sell because uh, of the overlapping mechanism of action. I think it'll be very exciting to see you know, how the combination of ipilimumab and nivolumab might come into play here, though we'll need more data in the liver cancer space. Uh, there has been some data in other malignancies, uh, essentially phase two data, that this combination might have activity after prior single-agent IO, uh, such as in the renal cell population or melanoma. As you heard, we really don't have any data for any therapy post-atizolizumab and bevacizumab. 
And so we're really in an arena where we have to apply old data and assume these therapies would be effective post atezolizumab and bevacizumab. As you've heard from Rich, um, many of us um, would really prefer the TKIs in this setting uh, for several of the reasons that you've already heard. Um, it's possible that by using um, a, a more pure VEGF that some of the escape mechanisms that you experience in the frontline setting could be acted upon by using a broader TKI, um, such as serafinib, lymvatinib, or cabozantinib, that really act on multiple pathways. As you've also heard from Rich, there is some appeal to using combination IO agents, um, you know, a PD-1 in combination with a CTLA-4, um, such as Ipinevo, which has been approved um, uh, in the second-line setting. Um, although, once again, we don't have any data um, in HCC to see if any of these therapies would be effective post-atizolizumab and bevacizumab. Now, as we're going through and selecting between these therapies, ideally, we would have a treatment selection biomarker, i.e. some biomarker that would say, um, for example, lenvatinib or cabozantinib or, or using a CTLA-4 would be more um, effective um, in this setting. But unfortunately, that biomarker currently doesn't exist, and so we have to use small differences between these agents to select between them in clinical practice. You know, it's exciting that so many drugs have been approved recently for the treatment of hepatocellular carcinoma. However, as we know, many of these new agents can cause unique adverse side effects that must be addressed by physicians and other cancer care providers. Would you please summarize some of the more common side effects and how you address these in your clinical practices? So we're all very excited about the data we're seeing with immune checkpoint inhibitors in liver cancer, specifically uh, now in the frontline setting, the survival advantage and its activity, single agent activity uh, in the second line setting and the upcoming combinations. And all of that needs to be balanced against safety and adverse events. And what's interesting in the liver cancer population when done in child PUA patients is that we're not seeing any new toxicities that we don't see in other malignancies. Clearly, when we consent patients for the use of these drugs, it's, it's a very broad consent that uh, really any organ system can be affected uh, with these drugs, but some things being more common, such as dermatologic uh, reactions, certainly uh, thyroid disorders, but again, any organ system can be affected, and therefore we need to watch patients closely. One of the big concerns in the liver cancer population was autoimmune hepatitis, given these patients have cirrhosis, uh, and that is not necessarily a, a common event in the liver cancer uh, population. Now, there are a lot of guidelines, and you know this table uh, comes from various guidelines that have been put out. Uh, but I think the take-home message is that we need to monitor our patients closely, but certainly the use of steroids uh, will be required for more serious events. And really, again, just to point you to some of the uh, monitoring guidelines put forward by NCCN, and again, I don't think this is unique to liver cancer patients. Uh, again, uh, exam doing a good clinical exam, a good uh, review of systems, uh, certainly looking at GI toxicity, uh, again, in a liver cancer population, diarrhea can cause volume challenges, which, again, uh, in this group of patients who just, don't has as, just doesn't have as much reserve, 
as an otherwise healthy quote-unquote patient with cancer. All of these patients will have some degree of liver dysfunction. And also looking at patient education. Uh, you know, some of these drugs now can be dosed monthly or every six weeks. And I think in the context of a liver cancer population, that doesn't mean you don't see them in between. I think it's very important to see patients in close follow-up, certainly when they start their treatment, and also educate patients what to look for as far as side effects. And I think that means having a broad differential for uh, what these drugs can do. And also if a patient is on uh, steroids, watching them closely and doing a taper that's appropriate so you don't induce a flare. With that being said, many patients can be re-challenged once they're off steroids, uh, depending on the toxicity and its severity. I think there's, there's a, a broad difference between the IOs and TKIs in terms of adverse events and their management. When we take a look at the TKIs, adverse events tend to be common, although they tend to be more mild in nature, and they tend to be easily manageable with dose reductions or dose interruptions. In contrast, when we take a look at the checkpoint inhibitors, these tend to be very well tolerated, um, and patients tend to maintain a higher quality of life, as shown by some of the, the trials that have been uh, presented, both um, the Checkmate trial as well as um, uh, the I Am Brave 150 trial, where you see patients generally um, do quite well with high quality of life and very few um, adverse events. However, when these adverse events occur, they, although rare, they can be quite serious. And so you can actually have um, adverse events that land people in the hospital or even in rare cases can lead to um, treatment discontinuation um, or even death in, in very rare cases. So it's important that because these AEs tend to be very rare, although can be serious if not detected early, it's important that we actually have a high level of suspicion. And so we can identify these AEs early and act upon them, whether that's by um, dose uh, interruption or that's by treating with steroids. And I think the two that really stick out in my mind when you're thinking about HCC patients would be to have a high level of suspicion, for example, for um, immune-mediated hepatitis and endocrinopathies, because those can actually be um, uh, quite easily overlooked if you don't have that high level of suspicion. You've already heard from Rich that patients with HCC tend to have underlying chronic liver disease and will have elevated liver enzymes. And so you can't simply blow off um, you know, mild elevations or moderate elevations in liver enzymes as being related to the underlying liver disease. If you see a steady elevation um, in, those elevated liver, in those liver enzymes, I think it's worth considering and asking yourself, is this the onset of immune-mediated hepatitis and should I withhold the checkpoint inhibitor? Likewise, if a patient's presenting with increased fatigue um, or malaise, this could be the cirrhosis, but it could be early signs of an endocrinopathy related to the checkpoint inhibitor. And once again, at that point, it's worth saying, we're asking yourself, could this be related to um, you know, thyroid dysfunction or adrenal insufficiency? And should I withhold the drug um, or delay the drug, or should I treat with steroids? And so overall, these drugs are very safe, but once again, we must have a high level of suspicion for AEs so we can act early and prevent them from becoming um, uh, significant. Thanks for those insights. Given the complexities inherent to patients with hepatocellular carcinoma 
and the wealth of treatments now available, it seems that multiple specialists are needed to manage these patients. Dr. Singhal, would you speak to this point? Yeah, no, this is, this is a very important point and something that we really have to consider when we manage patients um, with um, HCC. So I think to start with, there's two key points, and I think we've touched upon both of them earlier in the presentation, but worth reiterating at this point. The first is that most patients who present with HCC actually have chronic liver disease, if not cirrhosis. So this is a disease within a disease, and this really highlights upfront the importance of involving a hepatologist throughout the care of all patients with HCC. The second is that when we think about the management of HCC, this really is a broad treatment landscape that goes all the way from surgical therapies to local regional therapies to systemic therapies. And these therapies are all delivered by different um, providers. So when you think of the multidisciplinary format, you really involve providers um, from surgery, whether that includes transplant surgery and surgical oncologists. You involve interventional radiologists who can do things like ablation, chemoembolization, radioembolization. We see radiation oncologists who can do things like stereotactic body radiation therapy. And then of course, medical oncologists who, um, who can give uh, systemic therapy. Now, when we thought of, or when we traditionally think about the management of an HCC patient, we think of one provider giving one single therapy at one point. But we've become more and more cognizant that oftentimes we're thinking of sequential therapies or even combination therapies. So for example, somebody who's listed for transplant often needs bridging therapies while they're on that transplant list. There's more and more trials that are evaluating combination therapies of systemic therapy when used in combination with surgical therapy or in combination with local regional therapy. These trials are ongoing, but are highly promising. And I think this is really where the field is going. And so this really, you know, once again, highlights the importance of constant communication between these providers to not only think of the optimal treatment upfront, but the optimal treatments as patients either respond or don't respond to treatments so we can continue having them be on the best therapy at each individual point. Now, when we think of multidisciplinary care, the traditional format has been to do this in a multidisciplinary conference. And I think many of us have these at our centers where we work with radiology, we present the imaging, and you discuss this as a group to determine the best upfront therapy. But more and more centers are also building in other formats. For example, fluid referral systems where people can go between clinics on the same days um, easily or even co-located clinics, um, i.e. a one-stop shop where a patient can come in and see multiple providers that same day. This makes it the most convenient for a patient, also maximizing communication between providers, once again, optimizing treatment choices, not only in the beginning, but along the entire treatment continuum. Now, as we start to think about this, multidisciplinary care obviously sounds like a great, um, like a great option for patients, and it sounds very enticing. But one of the things in HCC is that we actually have very good data showing that this significantly improves outcomes. So we have several studies, as you can see here, that show different formats of multidisciplinary care actually improves outcomes, whether that's increasing treatment receipt, increasing guideline concordance, um, increasing curative treatment, 
But most importantly, it improves survival. And once again, this has been shown consistently across studies that have evaluated the importance or the benefits of multidisciplinary care. Now, when we take a look at all of those studies, here you can see probably one of the largest studies that's evaluated multidisciplinary care in just under 4,000 patients. This is a cohort study that came out of the National Veterans Affairs um, in the US, taking a look at patients with HCC diagnosed between 2008 and 2014. And when we look at the associations within this study, we see that multi-specialty evaluation was associated with the receipt of HCC therapy um, with an odds ratio of 1.6. And most importantly, review by a multidisciplinary tumor board was associated with reduced mortality, a 17% reduction in mortality, statistically and clinically significant. And at least in my opinion and many others, this really highlights that multidisciplinary care is not only something that sounds good, but actually improves outcomes and should be considered the standard of care for all patients with HCC receiving um, care in clinical practice. We appreciate both your insights on this issue. Our time is drawing short, so Dr. Finn, would you please summarize the important points of today's presentation? Uh, thank you very much for having me in the program. I think it's important for our uh, colleagues to take away from this program a few important points. One is that liver cancer is really two diseases. It's a tumor and underlying liver disease. And in that context, as Dr. Singal had commented on, the importance of a multidisciplinary approach. Uh, and also for our patients who present with intermediate disease and get treated with things like local regional treatment, uh, it's important to keep in mind that patients are not cured with that. And eventually patients will progress and now that we have so many options in frontline and second line that are improving survival, it's really important that we transition patients at the right time, the appropriate time. To maximize the benefit from systemic treatment, we need to get patients before they're decompensated. And as the patients go through their natural history of cirrhosis or local regional treatment, we can see them start to decline in their performance status as well as their liver function, which might limit our ability to treat them with the drugs that we have available. And again, it's important to work in the context of a multidisciplinary program. And when we look at the new drugs we have now, you know, after a decade of no drugs, newly approved, uh, since 2017, we have a number of drugs approved on high level of evidence, uh, including in frontline, atezolizumab and bevacizumab, as well as lenvantinib for its non-inferiority to serafinib and improving secondary endpoints. And in second line, regorafinib and cabozantinib, small molecules approved after serafinib, uh, and ramucirumab, uh, which was approved as a monoclonal antibody single agent for patients who progress on serafinib but have a high AFP, that is greater than 400. And, and that's one of the only drugs in liver cancer that we have a biomarker for to select patients. And given all these uh, new agents, uh, it's important for us to figure out how best to sequence these in clinical practice. And at the same time, there's a lot of new exciting things coming along. Uh, so just as we're getting settled in with this data set, perhaps uh, there'll be changes even in the uh, near future. So thank you very much for the opportunity to participate in the program. Thank you, Dr. Finn and Dr. Singal, for this excellent review. And thank you to our audience for your participation in this activity. This activity was provided in partnership with Axis Medical Education. 
To receive your free CME credit, be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation at reachmd.com slash CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.